Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This podcast is presented by Facebook, who are collaborating with the UK government and charities to support the pandemic response and limit the spread of misinformation. You know, George, says Pa Bailey, as he tries to talk his son into joining the family's building and loan firm in the 1946 movie It's a Wonderful Life. We are doing something important. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things. That simple desire for our own roof and walls and fireplace, or perhaps these days a DEFRA-approved log burner, is probably even more prevalent in Western society today than it was in the post-war era. But as you may just have spotted... The politics around building these homes has proved anything but simple. In Westminster, the word housing is now inevitably followed by the word crisis. MPs are inundated with messages from constituents stuck in inappropriate housing, from young people waiting ever longer to grab a toehold on the housing ladder, or from their frustrated parents still supporting them through their 20s and way beyond. And for all the pithy comments about millennials just needing to cut back on their avocado toast, this is no joke. The housing crisis impacts upon people's health, on their finances, on their ability to start families and to live where and how they wish. It skews the economy. It holds back productivity. It fuels intergenerational conflict and even community unrest. And if you thought all this was a problem confined to London and the South East... You're very much mistaken. Well, it's definitely a crisis in Manchester. This is Jennifer Williams, politics and investigations editor at the Manchester Evening News. It's potentially the consequence of some of these attempts to level up northern cities because where they've been successful, they have generated the kinds of demands that have inflated rental prices in our cities, particularly in Manchester. In a sense, Manchester is one of Britain's 21st century success stories. From the Commonwealth Games and the arrival of the BBC to the soar away success, much as it might stick in my throat, of its two football teams. But at both ends of the property market, Manchester's newfound riches have merely fuelled problems for many of those who live there. Something for the government to consider as it looks to repeat the levelling up trick in other towns and cities across the UK. House prices have absolutely risen. I think that the difficulty for young people getting mortgages and also the entire model of the way the city centre has been reconstructed in Manchester means that it's predominantly not an owner-occupier market. Most of the people living in those big tall buildings in the city centre that you see don't own their flats. And while the impact upon would-be first-time buyers is significant, it gets even worse for those families struggling to make ends meet. So as land values particularly in the centre of Manchester, we've gone up and that has kind of spilt out elsewhere in the city. People at the, at the lower end of the private rental market increasingly have been struggling to afford the rents that have risen as a result, which meant that demand for an increasingly constrained social housing supply went up. So you ended up with more and more and more families being placed into temporary accommodation. With Manchester running out of places to offer them, Williams says families suddenly made homeless are being rehoused in distant parts of the city region. 
that is a really big deal because the kids are then miles away from their schools, the parents are miles away potentially from their job or from their support networks. The public transport is not what it is in London. You might be getting three or four buses just in order to get your kids to school. The quality of accommodation that councils have been leasing has frequently been substandard and you end up with families living in very precarious and unhealthy and in some cases quite frightening circumstances because there simply isn't the housing supply available that they're able to afford. Williams has written extensively about life in temporary accommodation. I've been to some of them, I've looked at them. You can get some really shady characters living in the room next door. I came across one situation where... It was, I mean, it was effectively also being used as a bail hostel because it was just a very bottom end of the market B&B that was taking people both from the criminal justice system and also from the council. You've come across places that have had vermin and mould and you're talking about very, very large numbers, hundreds of families in Manchester alone that would be in temporary accommodation. And that's just one city. In London, where house prices have risen... And yes, I really am checking my notes here. By 2,000% since 1980, these problems are even more acute. Politicians on every side of the debate agree that we need to build a lot more homes. They've been saying it for years, all of them. And we're going to oversee also a revolution in home ownership in this country. There'll be the biggest house-building programme for a generation. How fewer houses have been built decade after decade, but we are I think it's time to demolish the worst of these and actually rebuild houses that people feel they can have a real future. With greater intent. Yet the number of new homes being built remains a long way off the government's target of 300,000 a year. In 2019, it was just shy of 215,000, the highest for some time but no better than it was back in the mid-2000s. And as you may have noticed, house prices and private rents have never been higher. So as the new housing secretary, Michael Gove, sits down at his desk on Marsham Street today, it seems a good time to look at why we're getting house building so wrong. I'll be asking a succession of former housing and planning ministers how on earth they let us get to this point including Mr Gove's old friend and flatmate, Nick Bowles. It's taken me perhaps a long time to be willing to accept that my analysis was wrong and therefore my prescription was wrong. And if we can't promise Gove a neatly packed solution at the end, we can at least offer a pointer or two as he prepares to embark on yet another set of supposedly radical reforms. So from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, And this week on Westminster Insider, we're exploring why it is that Britain just cannot seem to build enough homes and whether there's anything our politicians can do to solve what feels like the forever crisis of our age. It would be, Boris Johnson promised, the revolution Britain has been waiting for to finally start building enough homes a radical overhaul of the planning system to get houses built faster and in greater numbers and in the places that need them most. A great job, but for some reason or other, and planning has a lot to do with it, it takes far too long to build a home in this country and they're way, way too expensive. The planning white paper unveiled by Johnson and his then housing secretary, Robert Jenrick, in August 2020 would make it far easier, automatic in some cases, for developers to get approval for new housing developments in large parts of the country 
designated as growth zones. Fast forward 12 months and the plans appear to be in mm, some disarray. Backbench Tories and Conservative-supporting newspapers are furious at proposals they fear would disempower local communities to block unsuitable developments. MPs mutter dark threats of rebellion. Reports are circulating that the plans will be scaled back. And this week, Robert Jenrick was fired. He's in local government. He's posted that in the last minute, saying it's been a huge privilege to serve as Secretary of State... Thank you to everyone at the department for their hard work. His replacement, Michael Gove, thus finds himself walking into a maelstrom, handed the seemingly impossible task of triggering the massive wave of house building his party knows is required, but without further upsetting the Tory heartland areas so protective of their own countryside and their precious green belt. Good luck, as they say, with that. One former Conservative planning minister who knows Gove better than almost anyone, can afford himself a wry smile at the dilemma. And wry smile is absolutely right, and I you know, have a certain amount of fellow feeling. This is Nick Bowles, planning minister in David Cameron's government between 2012 and 2014. I think that there is a natural Tory instinct, conservative instinct, which is that reducing bureaucratic controls and allowing market forces to work is the best and most sustainable way of fixing a problem if the problem is a lack of supply. For years, he was one of Michael Gove's closest friends and allies in politics. They even shared a flat together back in the day. He can indulge himself a chuckle at the mess the current government is in, as he went through exactly this process himself less than ten years ago. Before I came to Parliament, I ran a think tank with Michael Gove and Francis Maud called Policy Exchange. And one of the subjects that we had addressed very early on was on the lack of housing supply. We took the view that the reason why housing was unaffordable and was becoming more unaffordable was because we built too few of them. The view we took was... It was because the planning system was a very cumbersome, bureaucratic, lengthy, uncertain and therefore expensive process. And so as a result, many fewer houses were being built than would happen in a pure free market. We wanted to make the planning system much more straightforward and predictable so that we'd increase the supply of housing, so that house prices would, if not come down, because obviously there's you know, lots of downsides to house prices falling, at least that they would remain stable so that as people's incomes went up, that more people would be able to get on the housing ladder. Once installed as housing minister in 2012, Bowles leapt into action. Decades of planning guidance would be torn up, he announced, and replaced with a shorter, simpler document. Developers would get new rights to extend and convert existing properties. At last, a building boom was to be unleashed. Unfortunately for Bowles, the Tory grassroots were in uproar. The argument that has been made you know, consistently is that, oh, we should be building all of the houses we need on brownfield sites. The truth is that, firstly, it's much more expensive to develop brownfield land because oftentimes it's you know, contaminated and everything else. But also, there's just not enough of it to be able to meet the need. So you do need to be developing a little bit of undeveloped land. And I guess the key 
most high-profile opponents of my point of view were the CPRE, the Council for the Protection of Rural England, but also, and perhaps more importantly, frankly, for me, was the Conservative Associations, Conservative councillors, because many of the areas that need more housing supply most because they're where people want to live because they're where jobs are are in you know rural seats in the southeast or near big cities in Yorkshire and and the southwest and so those tended to be conservative communities with conservative councillors who were you know spent their lives opposing any planning application and because in a sense of that viewpoint the daily telegraph ran a huge campaign The simple problem faced by Bowles, and now Michael Gove, is that the Daily Telegraph, the CPRE, the English Shires, are meant to be the basis of the Conservative Party's core support. They all agree more housing is needed, of course, just not, as they say, in my backyard. Bowles, however, did not shirk from the fight, even as polling showed how unpopular he was becoming with the Tory grassroots. I mean, I had, I guess, the great advantage of naivety. And so, you know, I thought merrily that I was off to fight the good fight and slay lots of dragons. And since I'm one of those people who quite likes a a bit of a dust-up, especially if it's on something I care about, I think I rather enjoyed it, even though it was, you know, by most people's definitions, politically painful. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, dealing with quite angry audiences. So it was pretty exhausting and probably, with hindsight, not wise politically in terms of my own future career. But I don't regret it because I believed passionately in it then. But fascinatingly, Nick Bowles no longer believes his approach was the right one. Ultimately, have we fundamentally altered the affordability of housing to people you know, who are buying their first home. No, we haven't. We've completely failed. It would be worse, even worse, if we hadn't done those things. But that's not really a good enough, is it? We didn't have a sort of fetishistic desire to have a certain number of houses. What we were trying to achieve was houses to be more affordable for young families. And are they more affordable? No, they're not. When you look back on that now, what do you think you got wrong and how do you assess the state of the housing market now? It's taken me perhaps a long time to be willing to accept that my analysis was wrong and therefore my prescription was wrong. I think that I was right in one sense, which is that as a result of our particular planning system, we got into a position where we were building consistently year after year, decade after decade, too few new houses and they then became very unaffordable. But I think that where I was wrong is thinking that somehow correcting the constrained supply and expanding the number of houses that were built every year would somehow then automatically make houses more affordable. Because in the meantime, a couple of other big things have happened. The first of which is that You know, a house was a place to sleep and bring up your family and, you know, cook food and stuff like that. What's happened since is that as well as being that, it's become an asset and a place you save your money and a place you store your money against all of the uncertainties of life and the future. The other thing that has happened is that 
mortgages have become dramatically more available. So the complete deregulation of borrowing, plus interest rates collapsing over the last 10, 20 years, means that the amount of borrowing that people can afford to service has dramatically increased compared to what it would have been in the 60s and the 70s. And that's also been exacerbated by international flows of money. So the London property market is completely skewed by people from all over the world, you know, thinking, why don't we just buy a house in London? Because whatever else happens, we'll always have that. And what that means is that you could almost double the number of houses that you're building every year. And still, would you half the value of property? No, you wouldn't. It's not a simple supply and demand equation. You can't just do it by expanding the number of houses you build every year. So David Cameron's own planning minister, who pressed through his long-held dream of sweeping planning reform less than a decade ago, has now concluded the exercise was largely a waste of time, at least in terms of bringing down the cost of housing for first-time buyers. Bowles now believes that direct state interventions in the housing market are the only way to help first-time buyers afford a home. Basically, what we need is a state-sponsored body that guarantees loans for first-time buyers so that you know, they can compete in the market to get property. Also, I think, you know, we just need to bite the bullet and, you know, build more affordable housing, which is, you know, for rent. They all are, as it were, the state intervening to fix the outcome of the market operating. And whereas previously I took the view that the fix was just building more, I don't think building more would really get at the problem that we're trying to solve. It will be fascinating to see whether Bowles' old friend Michael Gove has undergone a similar epiphany over recent years. I asked Dr Gemma Burgess, who runs the Centre for Housing and Planning Research at Cambridge University, if she thought building more homes would bring prices down. I don't think it's as simple as that. If we think about... What drives demand? Well, that's not one single factor. It's a pincer movement of different factors over time. So we have an ageing population. Our housing stock now has to accommodate four generations, not three generations. You know, our proportion of people aged over 60 is more than doubled as the proportion. Single-headed households are much more common. You know, we don't form joint households till later in life. People get divorced. That all pushes up the demand for housing. In the post-war period, when you know, we might think the sort of good old days when housing wasn't a problem, but mobility was lower. Now people expect to go to university and then to live anywhere they choose, attracted by those jobs. So housing demand becomes concentrated in certain areas. But the other side of that, the other part of demand, is that it's also fueled by credit. So it's become much easier, much cheaper to access mortgage finance. So low interest rates on mortgages make property a good investment. We've seen the rise of the buy-to-let investor in the private rented sector, when anybody can become a landlord. You know, so housing has become something that's more than a home over this period. It's become a financial asset. But what that does is it locks into a system where once you are a homeowner, you don't want house prices to fall. Even if you're not maxed out on a mortgage and at risk of negative equity, people don't want to see the value of their asset diminish. So we don't have 
any drive to want to see lower house prices. So the link between building more homes and bringing down prices is perhaps not as straightforward as you might think. And furthermore, as Nick Bowles made plain earlier, the truth is that most politicians don't actually want to bring house prices down, at least not for the people who already own them. I mean, seriously, imagine going into election, campaigning for a property price crash, which would strip millions of middle-class people of their perceived wealth. I'm no pollster, but I'd wager you may struggle to get much traction in the key marginal seats. Nevertheless, Dr Burgess is clear that, regardless of how you might address affordability, the government is still right to be focused on increasing house building significantly to around 300,000 new homes a year. Yes, I think absolutely. I think there is a strong consensus that that kind of target is about right. And, you know, that there's a lot of evidence, a lot of data... I mean, unpicking what housing demand is is quite complicated, but there is a consensus that that that's the target that that we should be aiming for, right? Coming up in part two, we'll be looking at how Britain did manage to build homes in those kinds of numbers in the past and why we suddenly stopped doing so half a century ago. Stay with us. Facebook is collaborating with partners in the UK to support the pandemic response. They've teamed up with over 80 fact-checking organisations globally, covering over 60 languages, to reduce the spread of COVID-19 misinformation on their platforms. And they have worked with fact-checkers such as Full Fact in the UK to develop multilingual media literacy campaigns that provided millions of people with tips for spotting false news. Get the full story at about.fb.com forward slash actions forward slash UK. What's easy to forget about Britain's current housing crisis is that this isn't, in any sense, a new problem. Policymakers in this country have grappled with housing crises in different forms, at different times, for different reasons, for as long as humans have sought a roof over their heads. Like, if you think we have a housing crisis now, you should have tried being a town planner during the 18th and 19th century industrialisation, when people flocked en masse to rapidly expanding urban areas for work. Housing was in acute demand, and the Victorians rose to the challenge, in their way. At the happier end of the spectrum, developers signed leases with wealthy landowners and sent armies of skilled craftsmen to the open spaces around towns and cities. The rows of fine two- and three-storey suburban housing they built are as highly prized today, 150 years later, as they were back then. The Victorians got really good at this, especially as mass production made it easier and cheaper to adapt to new fashions. In fact, towards the end of the 19th century, there was an oversupply of decent new middle-class homes, which is why developers started trying to attract would-be buyers with tiled paths and glazed porches and stained glass panels and the other baubles we see around the grand Victorian streets today. An oversupply of decent homes, leading to ever higher building standards, Can you imagine? But at the other end of the spectrum, though thankfully now consigned to the pages of Dickens, Engels and the like, were the Victorian slums. The Victorians might have built some beautiful houses uh, for those at the top end of the market, but the slums are largely gone. Dr Gemma Burgess. 
you know, back-to-back housing, very high density, uh, you know, overcrowded housing, lack of green space. At the beginning of the Victorian era, that housing is largely gone. So what we did see in the Victorian era is the development of large-scale infrastructure, so sanitation systems. But I don't think that we should romanticise the housing that was built in that area. Equally romanticised by those ruining our current housing failures is the post-war period when a bombed-out Britain faced another acute housing shortage. Great swathes of our housing stock had been wiped out by the Luftwaffe, and a post-war baby boom meant the pressure was on to find a solution. Once again, Britain rose to the challenge, in a way. In 1951, the Tories were elected on an outlandish promise to solve the post-war housing crisis by building, guess what, 300,000 homes a year. Winston Churchill appointed as his housing minister one Harold Macmillan, who for all his Tory sensibilities decided he was quite happy for half those homes to be built by local councils if it meant the totemic pledge could be met. Resources were poured in, regulations were cut, councils were allowed to borrow at the lowest possible rates. Macmillan treated the challenge like a war effort, with a 1950s-style version of the Brexit countdown clock in his Whitehall office showing completion rates ticking up towards the target. Having hit 300,000 homes a year by 1953, amid much public fanfare, Supermac found himself swept all the way into Downing Street within a few short years, a fact that's probably not been lost on the ever-ambitious Michael Gove. Britain would go on to build at least 300,000, and sometimes more than 400,000 new homes every year, with a couple of exceptions, for the quarter of a century that followed. Surely, then, these were the glory days of house-building in this country. Well, sort of. We tend to look back at the post-war period with sort of rose-tinted glasses of a, a period of that we should be re-aspiring to achieve, that golden era of council house-building. Gemma Burgess again. I think there's also a caution that that period of time in history was also a period of large-scale demolitions. That's the area when we cleared all the Victorian slums. It's also the era of the much maligned low-quality prefab, other housing types that we built, such as high-rise, high-density council housing, that we've since come to demolish or deplore. So it was quantity, not quality, for those post-war governments. And the net gains were less than the headline figures might suggest. Nevertheless, the pure numbers of new homes being built cannot be disputed. But in 1979, and yes, of course, that date is significant, the number of council houses being built suddenly slumped to below 100,000 a year for the first time. Even taking housing association-built properties into account, it was down to 50,000 by the mid-1980s and barely 30,000 by the time Margaret Thatcher left power more than 11 years later. And by that stage, of course, she'd sold off more than 1.5 million existing council houses to their tenants under her signature and wildly popular right-to-buy policy. Then, of course, there are all those people who've got a house and yet they haven't. It's theirs and yet it's not theirs because it's a council house and they want to buy it, but they can't. And why shouldn't people buy their council house if they want to... But before left-wing listeners start getting angry at Mrs T... It's important to say those social house-building numbers never even started to recover under 13 years of Labour government. In fact, the lowest years for new-build social housing were 2002 and 2003, with the economy booming and Tony Blair at the height of his powers. 
Blair's own housing minister, Nick Rainsford, told me that at the time, New Labour simply had other priorities. By the 1980s, actually a lot of the post-war shortage had been met and new issues were emerging, particularly about the condition of the stock and the need to renovate older properties. And when I became uh, the housing minister in the late 90s, the biggest issue at that time was actually dealing with the backlog of poor condition properties that hadn't been improved, dealing with the problems of energy inefficiency, homes that were very difficult to heat. The Decent Homes programme, which was a huge investment, about £40 billion of investment, was the answer, and that transformed the condition of a lot of the council housing stock and a lot of the housing association stock that had been allowed to deteriorate. That was the priority. I, I totally accept what you're saying about bringing houses up standards. It sounds to me like you would quite like to have seen a big council house building programme as well if you'd have been prime minister and not housing minister. Is that fair? Well, the priority was very much dealing with the backlog of poor condition properties because you cannot justify building wonderful new properties and leaving people living in slums in the adjacent plot of land. Yes, I regret that we didn't build more homes, but we did an enormous amount and made a very big difference to the condition of people's lives. Rainsford is in no doubt that the only way to get house building stats up to the government's 300,000 a year target is exactly the same way Britain managed it in the 1950s with a massive state-backed programme of social housing to supplement the private market. There has to be a properly funded programme of affordable housing, and that has not been adequate. And the various devices that the government have tried to use to, to fill the gap have not done so. The private house-building industry has, in general, rarely produced more than 150,000 homes a year throughout the post-war period, with the sole exception of a few boom years, which were then followed by a crash. So the house-building industry is inevitably a bit cautious, and they are reluctant to over-provide, partly because of the fear of a crash, but partly also for pure economic interests. If they over-provide, then that will impact negatively on the value of properties. And so they've got a vested interest in limiting their output to, as I say, around 150,000 a year. If you speak to people in the government now, they say that the big problem is too much planning regulation and planning authorities being reluctant to approve housing even though they know that they need it because they're you know, fearful of local voter reaction. And if it wasn't for that, simple you know, rules of supply and demand would mean that construction companies would be merrily building all the properties we need. What do you say to that as an argument? Well, the question that you should put to them is why is it when for the last 10 years the number of planning consents for housing has exceeded the number of homes built in every year why is it that planning is the problem? <laughs> that is the simple truth. More homes have been consented over the last 10 years than have been built, year after year after year. And that is the case at the moment. It is not the case that planning is stopping housing being built. The answer is not to rubbish planning. And it sounded like you were saying before that for the big construction companies, it's actually in their interest not to move too quickly. Well, of course, if you build too many homes and that depresses the market... That means the profit they're going to make on new housing is going to reduce. So it's a no-brainer. There's no way they're going to produce more homes than they can sell at the level of profit they think it's appropriate to make. On the pure numbers, Nick Rainsford is right. In every year since the mid-1950s, the private sector has built between 100,000 and a maximum of just over 200,000 homes a year. It's never got anywhere near to providing the 300,000 homes the government says we need. But while many on the left, 
like Rainsford, have long believed the construction industry will never build the number of homes we need, and that state-financed social housing is therefore also required. Those on the right have been taking a very different approach. We heard from Nick Bowles earlier about his mass rewrite of planning rules in 2013, but the Tories' efforts did not end there. In 2016, David Cameron pushed through the Housing and Planning Act, which again fiddled with planning rules, but also extended the right to buy to housing association properties, so further reducing levels of existing social housing stock. And then in 2017, Theresa May's government published a housing white paper promising to finally tackle the crisis once and for all. One of the driving forces behind it was Gavin Barwell, whom May had appointed as a housing minister to work alongside Secretary of State Sajid Javid. I was in my garden cutting a tree down when the call came through from Downing Street. So I was halfway up a tree trying to balance uh, while talking to the Prime Minister. But you tend to have, particularly if you're not you know, the most senior cabinet minister, you tend to have a fairly brief conversation. And really the key thing that she said to me was that she wanted to push housing up the agenda and do more to ensure that working people could afford to buy their own homes and that meant building more homes. And what did you assess to be the main obstacles facing you as a minister in wanting to do that? So I mean, this is sort of symptomatic of my politics more generally, which is that I found myself in the middle of the argument. The Treasury basically thinks the planning system is the problem. That The reason that we don't build enough homes in this country is that the state has nationalised development control and is not releasing enough land for house building and therefore supply is constrained. And other people, primarily but not exclusively on the left, will tell you that the problem is a failing market, that you've got a small number of large house builders and that it's not in their economic interest to build enough homes. And my view, and and Saj, uh, who was the Secretary of State, who I was working with, our view was that both of these things were true. We need more social housing in this country. We need more council homes, more housing association homes. I think then in the private sector... I think in terms of overall house building, you need to recognise there is a limit to what the existing big developers will do. And therefore, you need to bring some new players into the market. But you also need to, I think, simplify the planning system, speed it up. And you need to give local political leaders reward for taking bold political decisions to allow more house building. This last proposal is the one Barwell feels strongest about. If I hadn't lost my seat and I'd I'd carried on in the job I was in, what I wanted to do was cut deals with councils around the country where you would say, okay, if you meet your housing target and release this land, we'll give you this money for a new station or this money for a bypass or so that you took some of the other infrastructure budgets that the government has and there was a tangible political win so that if you're the leader of a local district council and you're taking a brave decision to build more housing, you get some kind of prize that you can show to your residents that this is what we got because we're doing the right thing and building the extra homes. And I think we've made a lot of progress in the last six, seven years in this country against nimbyism. I think more and more people of my generation and the generation above understand that if our kids are going to have the opportunities we had, we've got to build more homes. But you can't win the argument for more housing unless you can say to people, you're not going to see more 
traffic jams on your streets, more overcrowded trains when you're trying to get to work. You're not going to wait longer for a GP appointment. You're still going to be able to get your kids into the local school. You've got to provide that extra infrastructure for the extra people that you're asking to live in a particular area. I think that's absolutely critical if you want to crack this argument. One way of introducing that sort of incentive is via something often mooted by people as a possible solution to the housing crisis, some form of land value reform or taxation. Nick Bowles explains. Currently, if I own a field and it's agricultural land, it's worth somewhere between ten and £20,000 per acre. If I get outline planning permission to build houses on it without having done anything to it, so it's literally exactly the same field, with nothing done to it, it's suddenly between 100 and £200,000 per acre. And the landowner is getting all of that uplift just on the basis of having successfully navigated the planning system. I think it would be much better if we had a system of what's called land value taxation, which basically recognises the fact that, yes, landowner, you've contributed the land, and yes, you should get a decent price for that, but also... The government's going to have to build roads, put in sewers, put in utility links, build a school, expand the local hospital, harm more police, and that needs to be funded too. And some of that uplift in value should be going to the government, whether local or central, to fund all of those investments. And that, I think, would address is the common argument that people have, which is, I don't want that development to go ahead because I know that they're not going to build a new road, they're not going to add capacity to the primary school because there is no investment in the supporting infrastructure. And it's a very fair argument that people make because the money that should be funding that is all grabbed by the landowners. Some argue land value taxes would do much more than that, massively reducing price speculation by developers and so making land more available for cheaper forms of housing. I asked Dr Gemma Burgess of Cambridge University if she believed land value reform would help ease the crisis. Yes. I mean, the, the short answer is yes, it, it, it could. Politically, would anybody really go down this road? I think it's highly unlikely. Land values are clearly a huge challenge and they underpin a big part of our pricing market. Now, we have a very speculative land market in which landowners have very high expectations about what they should receive. This makes it really hard for certain types of housing to compete on viability grounds. So specialist housing for older people, community-led housing schemes such as co-housing. So what we see is the dominance of the big house builders and the, if you like, the usual housing types. Now, Oliver Letwin reviewed why build-out rates on large sites might seem very slow. And he also concluded that in order to deliver more affordable housing, we need to bring down the price of land. So we have to cap the value that landowners will receive when they sell their land. This is politically extremely difficult. You know, it feels like the right thing to do to say we will cap the sale of land at 10 times agricultural value, not 250 plus times agricultural value. However, if we look back over political history, every time the government has tried to intervene in the land market, for example, through different forms of land tax, the consequence is that landowners simply hold their land back from the market and it doesn't come forward while they wait for somebody else to come along and repeal that land tax. 
So yes, it's a huge part. That's it's the biggest driver of our house price growth in a sense is those land values. But it's an extremely politically difficult problem to tackle. As if to prove the point, we now know that large-scale land value reform was supposed to make it into Theresa May's 2017 housing white paper, but that she personally struck it out at the 11th hour. Sajid Javid, her housing secretary at the time, has since spoken of his bitter disappointment. Gavin Barwell told me he backed Javid all the way, but could not convince his boss or her then chief of staff, Nick Timothy, to give the proposal the green light. So I was a bit in the middle. I think Serge probably would have gone a bit further than me, maybe on some of the Greenbelt issues, which is probably the issue where he was having the most difficulty with number 10. But I was with him on some of what he wanted to do on trying to capture more of the increase in land value when you get take agricultural land and you give it planning permission. I had these sort of negotiations with Nick Timothy to try and bridge the gap between where the Prime Minister was and where he was to get us to the final white paper. Ironically, after the 2017 election... Barwell would find himself taking Timothy's job as Theresa May's chief of staff. Was he able to drive forward his housing plans from there, I wondered? Or did he find himself bogged down in Brexit negotiations and all the other issues troubling Number 10? Yeah, a bit, I think, is the honest answer. You know, it's an issue close to my heart and to the extent that I could eke out time away from Brexit, the domestic issues that I probably got most involved in were housing and the NHS long-term plan. Obviously, one of the real challenges was literally a few days after I was appointed, we had the Grenfell Tower tragedy. And so the whole issue of building safety arose alongside the long-standing arguments about supply. Once again, just as in Nick Rainsford's time as housing minister, there were simply other important priorities. There's a perception here, I think, that the current housing crisis is somehow unique to Britain that some combination, depending on your political viewpoint, of restrictive greenbelt rules, nimbyistic neighbours, short-sighted local authorities and a failure to build social housing have created a perfect and very British storm. And maybe to some extent that's correct. But it's important to say too that this is a crisis which extends well beyond these shores. House prices are rocketing in cities across Western Europe and in parts of the US too. And for all the talk of people fleeing urban areas during the pandemic, COVID has so far seemed only to fuel the price rises still further. In the Netherlands, the average cost of a house soared 15% between June 2020 and June 2021. The Dutch government has pledged to build, build, build its way out of the crisis, but now finds its plans stymied by political opposition and red tape. Sound familiar? And in Berlin... Soaring private rents, fueled in part by the decision some years ago to sell off much of the city's social housing stock, again, stop me if you've heard this one before, actually led the Berlin state government to impose rent caps last year. They were overturned by the High Court in April, to the delight of landlords, but to the dismay of the three quarters of all households who rent their homes in the city. There too, the struggle for solutions goes on. In Britain's overheated, over-complex housing market, there really are no easy answers. For many on the left, the solution is straightforward. A massive programme of social housing to supplement the inadequate number of homes built by the private sector. But while that worked in terms of sheer numbers in the post-war period, it required an awful lot of resources 
and produce some of the least popular and shortest-lived housing stock we've seen in this country for some time. For many on the right, the solution is equally straightforward. Reform planning rules, cut the red tape, and watch the market correct itself as supply finally meets demand. The problem here is that David Cameron tried that repeatedly throughout the 2010s, yet the crisis only worsened, and now even his own planning minister says the thinking was flawed and the project a dismal failure. For Michael Gove, the latest in a long line of housing ministers forced to grapple with this problem, none of the options can look too palatable. Swinging new taxes on landowners, for example, or programmes of mass council house building, are just as unlikely to enthuse the Tory heartlands as deeply contentious planning reform. The big question is whether Gove, fated for his reformist approach in the past, is the man to grasp one or all of these painful nettles, or whether Britain will stumble on, as it has for years, with housing increasingly out of reach for another generation. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And why not have a look back through some of our past episodes to see if there's anything else there you might enjoy. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and thanks too to Lucas Kotkamp for assisting with research. Here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.